Alrighty, let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment right now. We thank you for bringing us here. Uh, Lord, it is frankly a terrifying thing to claim to be a, a steward of your word, a messenger of your truth, and then to come on up and sit down here with a topic that doesn't have any clear scriptural guide. Father, I ask that before these people, uh, you would guard my mouth. You'd guard my enthusiasm. You'd guard my excitability. <laughs> that I may not be a distraction to the message that you have put on my heart this week to share. Father, may any offense that comes from this pulpit be an offense from the truth that is yours, not a bad joke of mine. Father, I pray this afternoon that regardless of where we come from, and we all come from different walks of life, that we would be very clear where we're going. That if this stumbling block, if it is indeed a stumbling block of science for us, would no longer be a stumbling block, I pray, Lord, that it would be a stepping stone to belief in you. Father, we commit this better part of an hour to you and pray that you would work amongst us because without you here... It's just air coming out of my mouth. Amen. Alrighty, well, good afternoon. Uh, It is exciting to be here. I have not preached. It's probably going to be my last time in this pulpit, at least, Um, for like 18 months. So this is a little bit uh, nervous, nerve-wracking, but we'll see how we go. Who am I kidding? I love this stuff. Um, it's good to be here, uh, and, and I love being on the home court, so to speak. Uh, it's kind of harder, actually, because you, you, most of you know me quite well, so I can't hide anything. Um, as Terry mentioned, uh, I'll be speaking on this topic of faith and science today. We're taking a break from what we usually go through, uh, which is the book of Proverbs. Uh, in my estimation, this topic, God and science, is immensely, immensely important um, God versus science, do we have to choose? Now that question was uh, first posed by Time magazine uh, on November 13 in 2006. It was phrased in in that way, which is interesting. Uh, And in in that magazine there, it dealt with issues such as can religion stand up to the progress and march of science? Again, this is a huge topic. I I don't pretend to even stab a dagger into this beast, uh, but at least I can maybe whet your appetite and you can smell the blood, so to speak, and go off and do your own study after this. Um, But really all I'm giving here is is a teaser, a taste um, of what there is out there for you to go commit your own mind to. Um, Before we get into it, though, I might say two things. First of all, I've got two problems. (laughs) I've got many more, but... Uh, there's at least two. Uh, I have a tendency to speak too fast, and the Lord has not gifted me with the brevity, with the gift of brevity. So uh, we'll see how we go. If you've got to leave, I will not take offence. Uh, let's just get right into it. Let's let's move on from the niceties. God and science. Do we have to choose? All right. Where the conflict really lies. Here's a tip for evangelism or just life in general. Whenever you're faced with a question. If you don't know how to answer it, or even if you don't agree with the question, when you're faced with the question and it gets thrown at you, the tip is question the question. Think about the question that's been thrown at you before you try and give a response. Because when you question a question, Joe, you always open up some of the assumptions that are hidden within the question itself. Plus, it's good if you need to think. I have no idea how to answer this. It gives you time to think about it. So question the questioner because you get the question 
err to open up the assumptions that were within their question. Jesus was the master at this, by the way. For example, Luke 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. You see, when you question the question, you open up the assumptions, and Jesus just did that right then and there. Are you calling me God? In other words, he was saying to the Pharisee, which is certainly not what the guys wanted to say. So let's question this question this evening. God versus science, do we have to choose? What assumptions are hidden in this statement? The very framing of the question assumes that there is some sort of conflict here between God and science, that there is some sort of opposition, some sort of tension, you know, uh, that, that they're versing each other somehow, kind of like um, Terry and David on the table tennis court, and we all know how that ends. Right? Uh, just kidding. But uh, is this a legitimate assumption like knowing how the, the rounds end with Terry and I? What is this conflict? What is this opposition? Who's involved? Well, on the side of science, you have a whole host of influential voices saying that God and science do not mix. For example, the theoretical physicist and Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg writes, The world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may in fact be our greatest contribution to civilization. Not holding any punches there. In a similar totalitarian tone, and I mean that, have a look at some of those words that were used there. We have ethologists and evolutionary biologists, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins, write, I'm utterly fed up with the respect that we have been brainwashed into bestowing upon religion. And taking this kind of attitude even further, we have neuroscientist Sam Harris, who has written rather chillingly, some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing in them. Look, I'm taking this stuff out of context. Uh, you guys need to go read them in context. Um, don't take my word for it. Um, but for now, I can't spend time going through the entire context of these, verse, these passages, these quotes. But um, come ask me afterwards if you'd like to know where they've come from. These comments need to be situated, however, within the broader context of this tension, this conflict between faith and science, or God and science, that has been occurring now for the past couple of hundred years. This conflict really met its fever pitch on June 30, 1860, in a famous debate at, uh, the Oxford history, uh, at the Oxford Museum of Natural History between Thomas Henry Huxley and Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, who was actually the son of um, William Wilberforce, who led the abolition of slavery. Just after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, seven months after, this debate took place. Huxley, who was on the side of Darwin, he's known as Darwin's pit bull, uh, he was very vigorous in his defense of evolutionary theory. Uh, he argued for the secularization of society through the d domination of science, which clearly the good bishop opposed. Interestingly, for any of you here familiar with John Lennox uh, and Richard Dawkins, uh, probably the most well-known atheist today, they had what has been dubbed uh, Wilberforce and Huxley Round 2. Uh, they had that back in 2008 uh, at the uh, Natural History Museum right there in Oxford. It's on YouTube. highly recommend you, you take some homework home with you today and watch that debate between Lennox and Dawkins. It is very worth your while. Not long after the Huxley-Wilberforce debate at the turn of the 20th century, uh, you have this 
enormously famous statement by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. God is dead. That occurred just there in 1899, the turn of the century. Which, amongst other things, was basically establishing the intellectual credibility of atheism. And what had killed God. Again, if you look at the context of Nietzsche's statement, you'll see, amongst other things, that it was primarily the scientific progresses which had explained away the need for God. Science had made it possible for academics to be intellectually fulfilled atheists. Today, you and I just assume that most people around us are atheistic or agnostic, at least here in Australia. Uh, But this was a watershed moment in history because what we're dealing with today was not the norm, certainly not uh, from the historical situation of Australia coming from um, Church of England, England. So we, we, were, we were born into, uh, our nation was brought up within a largely Western Judeo-Christian um, framework. So again, who murdered God? It was science. So what is, what's the assumption then within this tension, God versus science? What's the big assumption here? Well, this is central to what we're talking about. So if you're taking notes, write this one down. Central to this debate is the assumption that God and science are competing explanations for the universe. God and science are competing explanations for the universe. That's the way many people understand this conflict. God and science are competing explanations. That is an either-or, if you notice. It's either a religious explanation for the universe or a scientific explanation. It's like we're boxing it out in a ring and there's going to be a winner and a loser and as far as the media is concerned, science is winning. By the way, that's actually why, because of this assumption that it's either science or religion, that's actually why so many of the so-called new atheists today are scientists, are coming from that scientific court because they are seeing religion as an alternative to their discipline and their expertise. I read a fascinating book uh, this past week about how so much of this debate has been fueled by the, uh, the money that goes into certain disciplines at university institutions. So there's been a big war between the sciences and the humanities because of the funding, so they're always trying to put each other down. Theology being on the side of the humanities, it's actually quite an interesting way to look at it. One of, the, uh, one of the main uh, scientists uh, on, on the naturalistic side here uh, is a guy called Stephen Hawking. You may have heard of him. He said in an interview, Before we understand science, it is natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. What I mean by we would know the mind of God, that actually was the last line in his book, A Brief History of Time, what, we, what I meant when I said we would now know the mind of God is we would know everything that God would know if there were a God, which there isn't. I'm an atheist. Oxford professor of chemistry, not known to mince his words, good old Peter Atkins, says more forcefully, any argument that asserts that God did it is a sign of a lazy mind. And bringing this all together again, Richard Dawkins has written, Creationists eagerly seek a gap in present-day knowledge or understanding. If an apparent gap is found, it is assumed that God by default must fill it. Gaps shrink as sciences advance, and God is threatened with eventually having nothing to do and nowhere to hide. In other words, if you believe in God, you have a certain level of scientific ignorance. You're lazy, according to Atkins even anti-scientific, because you have knowledge gaps and you just say, well, I don't know, therefore God did it. 
This is known as, uh, in apologetics land, this is known as God of the gaps argument. And that's really what, if you want to reduce down this entire God versus science debate, it really comes down to this argument of the God of the gaps. It's like these two guys up here on the screen. Uh, When somebody finds something out there in nature that they can't explain in terms of physics, biology, or chemistry... Uh, there's this you know, complicated thing on the left, they can't explain what's on the right, so they just go in the middle and say, yep, God did it, it's a miracle. Um, that's the God of the gaps argument. So God is like this cosmic filler of our scientific ignorance, hence God of the gaps. This uh, kind of argument that's used to you know, attack modern day uh, religious people, I'm certainly speaking from a Christian point of view today, I'll leave other faiths to defend themselves, um, but this kind of attack of the God of the gaps it's given to Christians today is really uh, trying to draw attention to the fact that Christians in the modern world are no different from the ancient Greco-pagans uh, who you know, didn't understand lightning. So uh, what's that noise? Oh, it must be a big white-haired dude named Zeus and he just throws stuff at people when, when he's not happy. Uh, or the Germanic Norse. You know, what's that rumbling sound with a storm? Let's personify it because I don't get it. Must be a big dude with uh, you know, Chris Hemworth arms with a hammer just smacking stuff. Um, Hence Thor. So that's basically what this God of the Gaps argument goes back to. Now when people at this level of academia, Hawking, for goodness sake, Dawkins, these guys are the best in their fields of science. When these guys, who have the publicized positions that they have, say that belief in God competes with science and science is winning such that it is no longer intellectually credible for you to believe in God, people listen. Certainly the non-scientific community, which, let's be frank, is most of us here. People listen. People get confused. Now, I'm not a professional scientist, personally. Uh, uh, My profession is engineering. I work on a daily basis in the aerospace industry, so I work in the applied sciences. But I'm not a pure scientist in the strict sense of the term. But that's okay, I think, because I don't think I need to be a pure scientist and I don't think any of you here need to be a pure scientist in order to engage with what we're going to be talking about. Because, frankly, I don't think God versus science has anything to do with science at all. That's not to suggest there isn't a conflict. There absolutely is a conflict, but it's not between God and science. It's a conflict between two fundamentally undergirding worldviews of theism and naturalism. That's where the conflict really lies. I'm not going to for a moment presume that I can engage with Hawking or or Dawkins or any of those boys in their scientific game. I'm not qualified and I'm not talking about their science today. Uh, So so please don't mishear me as criticising their their capacity to think scientifically. That's not at all what we're doing. We're going to look at these underlying worldviews. That's what I want to unpack now in three points. Three points which I believe are false alternatives just like God versus science. Point number one, definitions, reason versus faith. Point number two, explanations, how versus why. Point number three, understandings, naturalism versus theism. Uh, This, again, outline will be on the screen, so let's look at these in turn. First of all, definitions, reason versus faith. We started to touch on this already in the introduction, but the conflict of God versus science is often constructed as a conflict of reason versus Faith. Is that a legitimate conflict? Well, obviously that's going to depend on what we mean by the word faith. 
Richard Dawkins has famously written, It is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others, but I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's greatest evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Similarly, Peter Boghossian, in his Emmanuel for Creating Atheists, writes, Whenever you hear the word faith, just translate this in your head as pretending to know things you don't know. I could go on. I had so many more quotes here, but the point is that so many on this naturalist, scientistic side of the camp understand faith as belief without evidence, as wishful thinking or what have you. And to be fair, if that's what faith is, then these guys are right. Man, I'd be speaking that harshly about blind faith. But the question is, is that what Christians mean by faith? Are these fair definitions? Would any of you subscribe to that? (laughs) Who happens to have a faith in the Lord? That's the question we need to look at. And I would suggest no, not at all. We could demonstrate this lexiographically. We could demonstrate it historically. We don't have time. Let's just demonstrate it biblically. The English word faith comes from the Latin fides, fidelity. And, and when it comes to the New Testament, which was written in Greek, uh, the understanding of that word, we actually have a pretty clear definition for faith in the Greek, pistis, as provided in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Let me read it for you. Now, faith, pistis, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, in this single definition, we have both the Greek idea of pistis, of a social bond, of uh, between two parties, and also the Hebrew idea, which uh, the Hebrews did not have a word for faith. The, the, word, the closest word was aman, which is belief and trust. But you have those two elements of the Hebrews and the, and the Greeks coming together, which is, by the way, Christianity. You have them fused together here in this one statement as we see the idea of a social bond, the Greek, and truth and reality coming from that Hebrew idea of aman. So those two fused together in this one verse. Pistis comes from the verb Pietho, which means, which is where we get the word persuasion, so to be reasoned and, and forcefully thought through. Per comes, that's actually where we go back to the word power as well. It's all wrapped in there etymologically. And Pistis carries this idea in the Greek, uh, again, of a social bond. And we see that written here as the writer is addressing Christians who are under persecution. So they're under persecution. He's talking to the Christians that he's assuring them of this truth, this reality that's hoped for in the future. There's the Hebrew element. Uh, while, conviction, um, while the conviction that they have in the present of this future hope is of their bond with the Lord. And you start to see that very clearly in the remainder of, of this chapter. So you have those two elements there of the social bond and the truth fused together in this one verse. Faith is the persuasive bond connecting the tension between the present struggle for these Hebrews and the future hope. And it's not empty. It's not blind. It is a commitment to something real that you can stake your life on. That's what the author is suggesting. The best example I know of of what this idea is getting at is marriage. It's a social bond that's based on truth. You don't get up there at the pulpit. These two will not go to the pulpit in a couple of months' time without reasons for getting married. They've actually got probably a couple of years' worth of reasons for getting married but then they still have to make a commitment of faith, actually seal the deal, get involved in that social bond, so to speak. So there's truths there, the Hebrew stuff, and then there's the Greek social bond stuff. So they're fused together, and I think marriage is a great example of that. 
The point of all of this is the Bible knows nothing of a faith that is blind. The Bible knows nothing of a definition of faith that is belief without evidence. And you don't get it any clearer than the good old Gospel of John right at the end there in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, I've just given you a whole gospel with the reasons for you to put your faith now in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us to be renewed by our minds. Come now, let us reason together. Christianity is not a blind faith. Don't believe it. So why then is there such confusion with this term? Well, here, Christians need to shoulder some responsibility. Let me speak in-house for a moment. What has happened in this debate is that the biblical idea of faith, as we've just talked about, has become confused with the unbiblical idea of fideism. Fideism or faithism. An ism is a belief or a philosophy about something, in this case, faith. Fideism is the belief that matters of faith are not supported by reason, that they're blind. And I've heard this from the pulpit, not this pulpit, but I've heard this from many well-meaning pastors in pulpits. I've read it and I've heard it online as well. But this confuses what the biblical teaching on faith is. And it does it this way. It confuses the idea of belief in God with belief that God. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is not alone. Belief in God requires both faith and reason, like the marriage. Again, the beautiful metaphor of the gospel as a marriage. Belief that God exists does not require faith. Satan believes that God exists, but he does not have his faith in the Lord. Again, just like my marriage to my wife, I had to have belief that she would make a great wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to then go down to the Southern Highlands, spend a lot of money, invite a lot of friends, and place my belief in her. And by some lapse of judgment, she said yes. In fact, if my marriage was based on fideism, it would self-destruct, at least logically. Because fideism is logically self-refuting. If faith is without reason, then there would be no reason for my faith game over. So there is clearly a contradiction between reason and fideism, but not between reason and faith properly understood. So, moving on then. The problem with Dawkins and Bogosian and other naturalists is that they are reacting against fideism, not faith. And because they are reacting to an ism, they got right to the other end of the spectrum with another ism, an ism called scientism. The belief that science and its methods are the only way to know truth at all. So while these guys don't have a belief in or a faith in God, they do have a belief in or a faith in science. Now I was going to go through this with you, um, but this guy does it on this video clip much better than me. Apologist William Lane Craig. Um, He's in a debate with Peter Atkins, who we've heard from already. Have a watch of this clip. But but, 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 do you deny that science cannot account for everything? Yes, I do deny that science cannot account for everything. So what can't it account for? Well, had you brought that up in the debate, I had a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we're all rational to accept. Let Let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, Metaphysical truths, like 
there are other minds other than my own, or that the external world is real, or that the past was not created five minutes ago with an appearance of age, are rational beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value uh, are not accessible by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the scientists in Western democracies. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful, like the good, cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with um, unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points A and B. But that strictly cannot be proven. We simply have to assume that in order to hold to the theory. But you're missing the whole... So, put you, that in your pipe and smoke. Yeah, you okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. We are, uh, none of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and yet they are accepted by all of us. And we're... That was uh, William F. Buckley. The, uh, the great conservative um, political commentator. I don't know if you heard his quip there. He said, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Only William F. Buckley could get away with that. Uh, the point is, like fideism, scientism is self-refuting. The very belief in science as the only way to know the truth is not itself a claim of science. Therefore, scientism is, tr if true in principle, is... False by definition. If it's true, it's false. Maybe it's a bit late in the evening for logic. That's point number one this morning. Reason and faith are not in conflict. They are in conversation. That leads to our second point. Explanations. How versus why. This point relates to the nature of scientific explanations themselves. What kind of knowledge does science actually furnish for us? First of all, let's understand what we mean by the word science. Historically speaking, the English word science comes from the Latin word scientia, which means knowledge of what something is because of how and why something is what it is. Let's unpack that. For example, you claim to be, uh, I assume if you claim to have scientia knowledge of the chair you're sitting on right now, you are saying that you, in, a, in effect, have knowledge of not only what that thing is, a chair, but how it is holding you up, through the legs, through the stresses and strains of, the, of your weight through the, the metallic structure, but also why it is holding you up. The purpose, the intention, the desire, the volition of your will to sit there and listen to some guy who's talking to you about you sitting there. But scientia is not what we mean by the word science today in the modern sense of the English term. If we look at the Oxford English Dictionary for a definition of science, we actually have ten different definitions, but uh, it says the most usual sense of the term science since the mid-19th century is the following. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing those branches of study that relate to the phenomena of the physical universe and their laws, sometimes with implied exclusion of pure mathematics. So you see, when we say science today, we have a limited meaning we, we have a limited meaning to only the physical phenomena around us, to only natural things, to only how the phenomena of the physical universe and their laws work in terms of cosmology, biology, chemistry, physics, and so on. Basically, it's 
modern sense of the term English, from the older sense of scientia, it's dropped the why. You have the why and the how, and here we only have the how. I'm going to unpack this for us a little bit more. Now stick with me here because this is so, so immensely important as it relates to this God versus science debate. If science in the modern sense of the term only tells us what things are by how they are, it only tells us about processes, doesn't tell us about purposes. And what kind of knowledge do we get from processes? First of all, let's think about the universe, how-only knowledge of the universe. What kind of how-only knowledge can we furnish from the universe? The ultimate question I believe anyone who has ever asked is a guy called, it was asked by a guy uh, called Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and he asked the question, the German, back in uh, the dawn of modernism around the 16th century there, he asked the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Notice it's a why question, a question of purpose and intentionality. How would the modern science, how only explanation answer it? Well, let's look at a fascinating contrast between two thinkers. Isaac Newton, the man who discovered the law of gravity in the 17th century. You know, you you remember that picture with the apple falling on his head and everything. That's not true, but it may trigger your memory back to high school science. Let's compare Isaac Newton, who discovered the law of gravity, with the late Stephen Hawking, who applied the theory of gravity to his work on black holes. John Lennox talks about this in his book, God's Undertaker. Write that down, take it home, buy it. It's, it's a fantastic book. Um, he talks about how on the one hand you have Isaac Newton, a devout Christian believer um, who discovered gravity and found that his discovery, was a, discovery of gravity was a reason for belief in God. And then on the other, several hundred years later, you have the unquestionably brilliant mind of Stephen Hawking, who actually held the Lucasian Terre for mathematics at Cambridge University that was formerly held by Newton himself. You have him using the theory of gravity that that Newton discovered as a justification for his belief or disbelief in God. Newton saw gravity as for belief in, Hawking saw it for disbelief in. Listen, Listen to this from A Grand Design by Stephen Hawking, published in 2011. Because there is a law such as gravity... The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. Now think about this statement for a moment. Because there is a law of gravity, so because there's something, an assertion of existence, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So something comes from nothing because nothing is something. This is what happens when scientists play with philosophy. (laughs) It's a flat contradiction. The absurdity of this kind of thinking was shown brilliantly in a book, which you don't need to waste your time reading, uh, by Lawrence Krauss called The Universe from Nothing, to which John Lennox responded simply and shortly and not without reason. Nonsense remains nonsense even when it's talked by world-famous scientists. Not all statements of science Not all statements by scientists are statements of science. But leaving aside uh, this patent contradiction for a moment, think about what Hawking is saying here. Why is there something rather than nothing? Hawking says because there's gravity, because there's a how explanation. You see, Hawking rewrites Leibniz's question from why is there something to how there is something. Basically, he doesn't actually deal with the question because his science won't allow him to. 
The genius and a little crazy philosopher known as Ludwig Wittgenstein, no friend of Christianity, stated it well when he wrote, The great delusion of modernity is that the laws of nature explain the universe for us. The laws of nature describe the universe, they describe the regularities, but they explain nothing. The existence of a law, of a how process, assumes that there is something and therefore is not in itself a complete explanation even within science, because it hasn't explained what that something is. It's missing. It's missing what? It's missing the why. This is enormously important to realise. Now check this out. Hawking wrote a grand design in 2011. When Hawking was five years old in 1947, another book was written by another guy that we may be familiar with called C.S. Lewis. The book was titled Miracles. It utterly devastates what we read in A Grand Design by Hawking. Listen to this brilliant analogy by Lewis. Quote, If this week I put a thousand pounds in my drawer of my desk, add two thousand the next week, add another thousand the week thereafter, the laws of arithmetic allow me to predict that next time I come to my drawer I shall find four thousand pounds. But suppose when I next open the drawer I only find one thousand pounds, what shall I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken? Certainly not. I might more reasonably conclude that some thief has broken the laws of the state and stolen 3,000 pounds out of my drawer. He goes on to say, furthermore, it would be ludicrous to claim that the laws of arithmetic made it possible to believe in the existence of such a thief or the possibility of his intervention. On the contrary, it is the normal workings of those laws that have exposed the existence and activity of the thief. You see what Lewis is saying? 1,000 pounds plus 2,000 pounds plus another 1,000 pounds over a couple of weeks equals 4,000 pounds. If I come back to my drawer a couple of weeks later and I only see 1,000 pounds, do we assume, wow, the laws of mathematics have been broken? No. We assume that the laws of the land have been broken and somebody's broken in and taken our cash. The point is there is two different levels of explanation going on here. We have the how level of explanation, which is the mathematics, and we have the why level of explanation, which is the personal agency and intentionality. Not only that, but did you see also what Lewis was saying there about uh, miracles and the thief? Miracles don't break the laws of nature any more than a thief breaks the laws of mathematics. They interfere with the laws of nature. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he didn't break the second law of thermodynamics or anything like that. No, he locally and specially and specifically and intentionally and purposefully interfered with an individual, Jesus, for a specific purpose. And the reason it is called a miracle is because we have science, because we have laws of regularity that show us it's a miracle. A miracle could not be a miracle unless there was science. Science tells us how things work in nature A miracle shows us, man, that doesn't work according to how things should normally work. That's why the resurrection was kind of a big deal because people don't normally come back from the dead. So science is the very mirror by which we understand miracles. You see, they're not opposed. They're not opposed. Okay, that's the first sub-point here regarding scientific knowledge of the universe. What about you and me? Let's make it more personal. What does how-only knowledge of the human person do? The late Francis Crick, a naturalistic thinker and winner of the Nobel Prize in Molecular Biology, will tell you this. 
Your joys and your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than behavior of vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That's what a how-only explanation will get you. Are we an assembly of nerve cells? Of course we are, but is that all we are? And if, if we are an assembly of nerve cells, well, where did that come from? Why am I an assembly of nerve cells? Is the love that you have for your spouse purely the product of your nerve cells and your firing neurons in your brain? Is the love of a mother for her child simply reducible to the fizzing bubbles of chemicals in your brain? Dawkins gets a little bit harder hitting when he says this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there was at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. I submit to you today that not only is this kind of how-only thinking about the human person self-evidently false, but it destroys the very moral pulse that makes you and I human beings and not animals. It is self-evidently false because if DNA neither knows nor cares, then why is Dawkins' DNA telling me something I should care about? If his own DNA doesn't care what it's saying, why should I care? Why should my DNA care? And by the way, notice how this flatly contradicts what he said prior about faith. Faith is one of the greatest evils. I thought you said faith, uh, evil isn't a thing. If you do press somebody and say, well, why DNA, why molecules, they'll tell you chance. But by the way, chance is just another how explanation. Chance never created anything. Chance is the explanation of the likelihood between things that already exist. Because you're talking about the chance of things. Chance doesn't create anything. It's an abstract concept about things, just like gravity. Even Charles Darwin, the high priest of naturalism, recognized this problem when he wrote, quote, With me... The horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or are at all trustworthy. This is called Darwin's doubt, which basically brings into question everything he'd ever done, and that's his own words. Like fideism and scientism, reductionism of naturalism is self-refuting, because if it's true, you can never know it. But not only is naturalistic reductionism self-evidently false, it is dangerous and destructive. I mean, look at the killing fields of last century. Look at them today in the clinicians' rooms. When you erase the why out of explanation, the question of purpose and meaning and intentionality, you erase the very moral impetus that distinguishes us from the animal species. So you're left with only how explanations of process and purpose without any rhyme or reason other than chance. And I submit to you that a world where facts are unto themselves, their own justification, are ripe for the most reckless of social adventures. That's what dictatorships are how only explanations justified by themselves. Like Craig said in that video, science can tell you how the Nazis brutalized their captors in concentration camps, but it cannot tell you whether or not they were right to do so. 
To sum up this section, let me point you to a concise analogy given by John Lennox. Brilliant analogy. Why is the water boiling? Well, the heat from the Bunsen burner flame is being conducted through the copper base of the kettle, which is agitating the molecules, which are moving faster and faster and faster. That's why the water's boiling. Hmm, says Lennox in his grandpa voice. Actually, it's boiling because I want a cup of tea. You see, the first is a how explanation. The second is a why explanation. The first is a how explanation of process. The second is a why explanation of purpose and intentionality. It's the humanness of that whole decision about the the kettle. That's why we need to be very careful before we raise it. And like Q&A, ABC, 2015, August, I think, um, uh, Richard Dawkins was, was in Australia and he was asked a why question and he said flatly, the why is a silly question. Got to be careful. And think about tea for a second. The why explanation, if you want to push it, is actually more fundamental than the how explanation because people have been making tea for thousands and thousands of years without knowing anything about heat conduction. I know that this is almost condescending, uh, but it gets right to the heart of what we're talking about here with the whole God versus science debate. The scientific view of the universe, not only, it only gives us one point of view, the how point of view. Is it important? You bet yeah. I am loving my, my Google Pixel. This isn't a ditz on science. It's a ditz on certain thoughts about science, about how it works. Science doesn't say anything about why the world is and therefore it doesn't actually have anything to say about personal agency, you or God. God versus science, do we need to choose? No. That's a category error in logic. It is akin to saying, wow, green is so loud. You just confused two categories. Notice I didn't say pink. Sorry, I was working on that one all day. Okay. <laughs> they are two different levels of explanation. All right, thirdly and finally... We're going to wrap up this up. Understandings, naturalism and theism. I said at the outset that none of us here need to be qualified scientists to speak on this topic, and I hope that you're starting to see why. This has really little to nothing to do with science. The conflict is not between God and science, but the underlying worldviews of theism and naturalism. Theism is uh, the bottom-up view uh, as well as the top-down view, the bottom-up of how as well as the top-down of why. It allows for both. Naturalism denies the why and only allows the bottom-up of the how-only explanations. That's where the conflict really lies. So you might be thinking, I can't take any more. You lost me with the whole how-why thing. That's okay. This final section here is for you. It's less philosophical. It's more practical. If God versus science was really a legitimate tension, then what should we expect? Well, we certainly should not expect to find believers, Christian or otherwise, that are scientists. That would be a contradiction in terms, right? I mean, if these are competing explanations for the universe, that would not make sense. So do we find believers who are scientists? Oh, yes, we do. In his book, 100 Years of Nobel Prizes, published 2002, Barak Shaliv gives a statistical analysis of over 654 Nobel Prize winners across the spectrum of chemistry, physics, medicine, peace, literature, economics, uh, from 1901 to 2000. He found that 65.5% weren't just religious, they were specifically Christians. 65.5% of Nobel Prize laureates were 
Christians or identified with Christianity. Coming in second place were those identified with uh, Judaism, which when you think about it is insane. The population of the Jewish race on the planet, that, that is crazy. They are a serious minority. And then you have atheists, agnostics, and freethinkers coming in at 10.5, and you have the remaining 3% identified with other faiths, 0.8% of which identify with Islam. Now, these statistics don't validate belief in God. That's why I've left them right to the end. But they definitely show that the tension is not a legitimate one. The, The conflict is not between God and science. It's not between faith and reason. In fact, if you look at the very birth of modern science itself, you'll find that the majority of the early scientists were people with a firm Christian conviction. Many of the early modern scientists, the progenitors of the iPhones, if you want to call them that, the people who gave us the scientific method that has produced the built environment that you and I enjoy today, did not mince their words on their Christian convictions. For example, we have men like Bacon, Galileo, Descartes, Pascal, Boyle, Kepler, Newton, Faraday, Clark Maxwell, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. The biggest names in the scientific revolution were devout religious believers who, de- who believed in an intelligent creator God who created the cosmos. Now, a lot of naturalistic thinkers will go, yeah, that's not really that cool, Dave, you know, because um, 16th century Christianity was the only game going on in town in, in, in Europe. But that kind of sleight of hand mark just misses the point. Why Christian Europe? Are you really wanting to say that there weren't other intellectually capable cultures out there? Because that's just not true. China invented gunpowder. The Arabs in the Middle East had thousands of years worth of mathematics. They invented the clock. There was, there was very capable minds elsewhere. Why Christian Europe? Why did the modern scientific method come out of Christian Europe? Fascinating book that I read, J.V. Uh, Lamique Cassidy, a terrible butchering of his name. Um, he suggests that the reason why modern science came from Christian Europe is because of the Christian doctrines which taught of a distinction between person and nature. Fundamentally, we have the distinction between person and nature in the Trinity. You have the nature of the Godhead, the unity, the oneness, and then you have the persons, the threeness of the people. It's not a contradiction, it's a paradox, but it's not one person, three people. It's one nature and three people. And he says that's fundamentally where it came from and then down to the individual human person, you and I, we all have a nature, it's called being human, but we have individual natures, personalities as David, Brad and so on. So he suggested it's because of that distinction there, whereas the Chinese uh, did not have that distinction in their mystic, spiritual um, uh, ancestor worship and things like that. And the Arabic sciences were certainly much more in line with strict determinism, so they didn't have it either um, with Islamic belief. But the Christian distinction between nature and person guaranteed science a dignity, securing its future, otherwise denied by the non-Christian world. How? Without summarizing the rest of the book, let me just quote C.S. Lewis because he does it so well. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Christianity doesn't impede science, it incentivizes science. And listen close, because this is like grand central station of this talk. All the trains are going to come in here. Wrong definitions and wrong explanations lead to wrong understandings. That's our three points. Wrong definitions and wrong explanations lead to wrong understandings. If we are wrong on our faith, 
and we are wrong on scientific explanations. We are going to be wrong on our understandings of the world. If we're wrong on our understandings of the world, we're going to be wrong on our understandings of the creator of the world, God. I said at the beginning that this whole debate between God versus science is ultimately boiled down to the God of the gaps argument. The argument for the God of the gaps, that God is just a filler for our scientific ignorance, only works if you define God as an explanation for what science hasn't yet explained. It is not biblical. That is not Christian. God isn't the God of the gaps. He is the God of the whole show. In the beginning, God created the little bits we don't understand. No. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which finds its New Testament parallel in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the reason, the rationale, which is the very basis of your faith, by the way, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things, not just the bits we don't get, all things came into being through Him. The bits that we do get and the bits that we don't get. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons that we may observe them forever. The whole package. You see, Christianity teaches that a rational God, the Logos, built a rational world with unique, rational creatures capable, made in his image, capable of understanding this world, and not only capable, commanded to understand it, to go out there to be fruitful and to discover the laws in nature. So to sum up, Christianity teaches what science assumes. Christianity provides the why of the universe for the how of science and the foundation of faith for the function of reason. It provides the creator in the beginning for creation right now. We don't have to choose between false alternatives. God is no more competing with science as an explanation for this universe than you are with heat conduction next time you want to have a cup of tea. Christian faith is not blind faith because by definition, Christian faith is evidence-based The value of apologetics is that it marshals that evidence and makes it known. The fact that God claims to have become a man in human history, distinctive to Christianity, an insult to Islam, and just totally unknown to the Eastern mystics. The fact that God claims to have become a man in human history, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, means that the central claims of Christian theism are open to scrutiny and falsifiability. Bring it on. If you can throw out the historical claim of the resurrection, no more Christianity. Do your best with your minds. The Bible asks you to. Bring your questions. Study this for yourself. And I am rest assured that the book that is being plundered with the best minds for the history of humanity, at least for the past several thousand years, and, and has yet not come unstuck. I'm confident that if you are searching, you will find the answers. My hope and prayer today is that at least we've clarified some of these confusions on the discussion of faith versus science, God versus science. For my fellow Christians, brothers and sisters here, I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're challenged as well to actually sharpen that mind of yours. Um, And if... uh, if you're here today and you're, or you're listening online and you're not convinced of the claims of Christianity or you're sceptical or you're just not sure, that's, that's okay. 
But let me just say this to you. The very fact that there are truths by which you can measure your doubts presupposes once again that there is indeed a God to be found. Otherwise, why would you be doubting? And with that, may I leave you with not another argument, not another explanation of hows and whys, not a reason, but an appeal for relationship because that's where we go with all of this. The first chapter of John's Gospel, we read these words. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Come and see. Why don't you come and see for yourself? I'll be around afterwards if you'd like to have a chat. If I can't field your questions, I'm going to throw you to Terry or Mick. If they can't, we'll all get around a phone and look at Google together. There are answers to our questions. There are answers to our questions. If you want to know any of the resources as well, please do come have a chat. Uh, There are good books. There are terrible books. And I can hopefully save you some time from going through them all myself. Let me pray as the music team comes up. Heavenly Father, we... I just pray the the song of the psalmist. The heavens declare the glory of you. And their expanse is declaring the work of your hands. Day after day they are pouring forth your speech. Night after night they are declaring your knowledge. There is no speech, there is no words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. God, speak now to our hearts through your Spirit, because you have spoken by virtue of the fact that we are here, that we exist. Speak now to us in a special way. All of us, Lord, have a mind. We all have a heart. I pray that you would work on both of those now. They don't explain themselves, but having... A God who is both the reason and rationale for the universe and who came in love for humanity. John 3.16, you so love the world, explains who we are. So much of identity today is confused because we don't know how to describe ourselves without reference to ourselves. So we look within and we never find what we're looking for. And It's a tragedy today that identity is, is in crisis. It's because we don't know our creator. It's like being an orphan. A cosmic orphan. God, point us back to our origins, point us back to you, so that no matter how broken our own families are, and we all have problems with our families, no matter how broken we are, we can find the joy of being born again into a family that is safe beyond the borders of death. God, I pray now that you would quicken our conscience to your holiness as our creator. Feed our mind with your truth in Jesus. Purge our imagination with your beauty. Open our hearts in love. And may the souls of the men and women here today be enlisted into your service, I pray, this hour, because the hour is coming when we won't be able to choose. Amen.